one. Hello, my name is Daniel Sharp. I'm a third year English literature and history student at Edinburgh University. And I'm the president of uh, the university's Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society. Uh, this is the Pondering Primates podcast, which is the podcast of the society, which was started uh, by, la- by last year's committee. Um, and there are about seven episodes from last year, uh, which uh, have a lot of diverse topics and guests. And it's available on Anchor and iTunes, uh, so you can take a look at those things at your leisure. We did record a series finale for last year with uh, <coughs> with with members of the previous committee and the new committee, which is me. Um, but unfortunately, the the audio um, result of that was not very publishable. So we're just going to skip ahead and go into this year's second series, which is yeah, it's my grand my grand eloquence. I'm dividing up by series, so this is the series opener. And uh, the, the the pondering podcast, uh, pondering primates podcast. Uh, as I said, it's the official podcast of the society, uh, but it's, it's basically just for you know wide ranging open discussions on 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 a variety of topics and issues. Last year there were uh, people from the Hindu society and uh, a podcast devoted to feminism. So you know there's a there's a lot of lot of scope. We're not just going to talk about God, we're, we're, we're more, uh, we have a wider appeal, I would say. Uh, so if you've got any ideas or want to get involved, just get in touch. Uh, the contact details are all uh, available. If, you, if you're listening to this, you'll know where the, the, the details are to contact us. Uh, so after that, after that brief introduction to the podcast, uh, I'm going to introduce today's uh, speaker or guest uh, who is called Dr. Iona Italia. Uh, who is a friend of mine with many talents. She is uh, she's a Parsi of Indian and Scottish background, an editor, writer, translator, uh, based in Argentina. She sub-edits Ario magazine, which I write for, and hosts is one of the hosts for the Two for Tea podcast uh, with Helen Pluckrose. Uh, she also works for Letterwiki, which I also uh, write for and I'm involved in which is a new platform for the digital exchange of missives and it's an attempt to improve public discourse from uh, what can be seen as the fast food of social media. Um, Iona is a very, uh, she's an inveterate tweeter. She has lots of friends and enemies on, on Twitter. Um, and her writings uh, come from, I would say, a strong left-wing stance, but is very highly critical of the capital letter social justice movement um, and show a preoccupation with what I would say is real social justice. Uh, her essays for ARIO include book reviews, um, discussions about circumcision and fascism, uh, critiques of jargon and the academic humanities and, and many other things. So I would recommend you visit her uh, her page on ARIO or her website, ionaitalia.com uh, and enjoy the many wonderfully written essays that she's done. Uh, she's also written two books, on one on 18th century journalism and one on tango, and is currently writing a memoir of herself and her father, which explores race, culture, identity, and other such issues um, on, the Indian, on the Indian subcontinent before and after partition. Oh, gosh, phew, right. 
So after that lengthy introduction, thank you. What a... I'll say hello, Iona. That's the most grand. Hello, that's the most <laughs> grandiloquent introduction anyone has ever given me. I'm going to just put this as a little sound file and add it to my CV. <laughs> um, and you are hired as my <laughs> PR officer. You've got the job. I'll, I'll, I'll be your agent. <laughs> um, I will just. <laughs> Thank you. I will just correct you to say that. Um, so yes, um, Helen Pluckrose is the is the editor editor in chief of Ario Magazine, and I am Helen's second in command. Mm. I'm the first officer of the USS Ario, mm. and she is my mm. captain. Um, but I actually uh, run the I I host the Two for Cheap podcast, and Helen occasionally co-hosts. All oh, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we we began the we began the podcast together, but Helen has since um, gone on to greater things. <laughs> <laughs> she is a very she's a very busy lady, so um, she um, she sometimes co-hosts with me and gives support to the podcast. Mm. Um, and you rather underplayed your role at Ario because you are one of our staff writers. I'm very proud to say. <laughs> And uh, we are delighted to have you. It's, uh, I think it's very unusual to be um, such a gifted writer um, while you're still an undergraduate. You are the kind of Scottish Coleman Hughes in that regard. <laughs> and I think you will oh, go God, Well, I, I, I do like praise, but I also don't like praise. I get very awkward about it. So uh, thank you, but moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> So what what can you tell? I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with with Ario and Letter and Two for Tea, but what what would uh, how would you describe it to people who have never heard of these things? And what do you think is their appeal? And what do they what do these things aim to do in their different ways? Uh, okay, so Ario, I'll start with Ario. Ario is a digital magazine, um, and mostly focused on politics, political and social commentary, although we do have sections also on science and technology and on philosophy, psychology and art and culture. And I would say that the majority of my recent contributions have been uh, not in the fields of politics, but in mostly in art and culture. And uh, my most recent article on circumcision was in the science and tech Mm. um, section. So uh, we also are a magazine, and by that I mean that we will accept well-written, well-argued pieces from um, both sides of the political aisle. I was going to say all ends of the political spectrum, but that's not quite true, because we would not publish something that that did not fit a broadly defined liberal humanist Mm. did not have a broadly defined liberal humanist slant so um the writing could be from a more uh, conservative and right-leaning perspective Mm. or from a more uh left-leaning perspective but um we would not publish something that was illiberal yeah so for example that was far-right fascist in tendency or perhaps also um, something that that based its arguments on religious fundamentalism. Um, so yes, it's a broadly nonpartisan magazine. We don't agree with all of the arguments that we publish within the magazine, but we feel that they are all things that are worth listening to. Mm. 
And if anyone is listening and would like to send us a submission, write to us at submissions at ariomagazine.com. We do have a, a, a lot of submissions at the moment and only a small proportion are published, but you could be among them. Um, and then Letter <coughs> is a new platform. It's an, it's an app and website, pla so, kind of social media platform, but it's very different from other types of social media. And it's meant to complement rather than replace social media like Facebook and Twitter. It is a place where you can write digital public letter exchanges to each other. So you sign up to letter with a friend yeah. or you can we can help you find a an interlocutor, a pen pal to write with on letter and it allows for a public discussion of a particular philosophical or political or personal issue in the form of letters. Um, and unlike Twitter or Facebook, there's no chance of third parties commenting. You can obviously share your letters, the letters can be publicly read and you can share them on other platforms, but people cannot derail your conversation by going in and baiting you or commenting mm. or liking and disliking and all those kinds of things. So it's a conversation between two people, which is public. And we have had um, both scientists and philosophers and writers uh, discussing more academic and political topics on the platform. We've also had people talking about more personal issues, exchanging advice, and exploring childhood memories. We've had all kinds of different exchanges. And uh, the there is also a regular column in ARU magazine, which is articles based on topics that have been discussed on Letter. Mm. So that's what I'm doing on Letter. And Two for Tea is my podcast. And it's a... Um, I... I interview whoever I think is particularly interesting at that moment, and often people who've recently published a book that has grabbed my attention. And I've talked in a very wide range of topics. I've interviewed people like Nicholas Christakis and Jonathan Haidt on uh, psychology. I've talked to writers like Will Storr. Mm. Um, I've talked to Sarah Hader. Um, I spoke to Brian David Earp um, on medical issues. So I've had a wide range of guests. And um, if you would like to suggest a guest for my podcast, please do get in mm. touch. That's a very good and podcast. You can find the podcast. I should go, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. I'll give <laughs> you some advertisement. It's very good. It's a very interesting podcast. Thank you. So yes, that's that basically summarizes it, mm. I think. And this is my uh, full-time work. So I work for between Ariu Ledger and the podcast. Um, that is my uh, full-time mm. full-time job. As I think as two for T is it. I was under the impression that it's kind of is it associated with Ariu? It's kind of Ariu's podcast, or is it just kind of a separate thing? But obviously, um, kind of yes, that's. 
Well, it's sort of connected. So I decided to associate it with Ario. Mm. So I give certain podcast related perks to Ario subscribers, for example. Um, and I, um, I sometimes also have guests on and then write about those guests work on Ario. So I did that, for example, with Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff were on the podcast, and I also wrote a feature on them for Ariu. But um, they are loosely affiliated, let's say. But the podcast is entirely listener-supported. It's entirely supported by its own Patreon. Mm. Yeah. Well, I was I was also going to add that later. <coughs> I think sometimes people, uh, when they hear about later, might think it's very academic and. And a lot of the discussions are intellectual and academic, but there are also discussions about. Is there not one that is, talks about Babylon Five, uh, the sci-fi show? Yes, I, I, <laughs> yes, I wrote about Babel. I, I wrote a series of letters with a friend where we just geek mm. out about Babylon Five, <laughs> and you've also written about weight loss and healthy. Yes, yeah, healthy habits. Or unhealthy um, habits, in my case. <laughs> unhealthy un- habits and how, how and why you don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's very so, broad. Yeah. Yes, I, it's, it's very broad. I think it fills a gap, which is the internet allows us to talk to a very wide range of people who we would never have had access to in the past or or would have been unlikely to encounter without the serendipities of the of the mm. web you and i wouldn't be talking to mm. each other if it weren't for um our association through first twitter and then letter and now also mm-hmm. are you um but i would never have discovered you and your writing and we would not be having this discussion but at the same time um on online culture is beset with trolls um discussions can quickly become very heated very nasty and letter is a place for people to have two people who want to talk to each other who have goodwill and good faith and who don't want it to degenerate into a fight mm. can have that conversation on letter but other people can all benefit from it because it's public so it's the kind of conversation in depth and um, and good faith and amicable conversation you might have with a friend, but it's public. Mm. And at the moment, we have a competition. We're hosting a competition called Impossible Conversations. And the competition, on Ledger, you can write about any topic and you don't need to be having any kind of a discussion or debate or argument. But the Impossible Conversations um, competition encourages people to have write letters across an ideological, philosophical, or political divide. So find someone with whom you strongly disagree about an important topic and write a series of letters to each other exploring that topic to enter the competition. Mm-hmm. And the, it's not a debate, so we are not going to award the prize to the letter writer who convinces us that their side of the question is is correct we're going to award the prize to 
the two correspondents who, despite disagreeing strongly, have the most civil and productive conversation. Hmm. It's, it's, it's harder than it sounds. I mean, I, I recently just finished uh, talking with Nick Tippett, who is a, a Jehovah's Witness, I believe, uh, and about religion and God and morality and humanism and all that kind of thing. And it's actually quite hard not to not not to get very heated. I think I think we we did pretty well, but you know, it is actually more of a chat. It sounds quite easy to say, "Oh well, we'll just have a good faith discussion." But once you're in the middle of it, um, and somebody's saying something that you just completely disagree with, and you just like, "Oh, for God's sake, why are you saying this?" Uh, it takes a lot of effort, I think, to 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 respond civilly. I think I think Nick and I did manage to do that for the most part, um, but it's it's a hard skill to manage, and I think yeah. it's a very important skill to try and master in a world where, as you say, with, with most disagreements tend to just degenerate into name calling and uh, viciousness without any progress. Yes, I think it's a really difficult skill. I think many people don't have it and I find it very hard I struggle with that um, and I'm not entering the competition myself and I'm also not on the judging panel we invited external judges to judge this competition but I think that it is really valuable and one of the uh, one of the things that I would like letter to be able to do is a give people a way of practicing that skill and also allow those who are very good at this um, and there are some people who are superb at, at doing this to showcase their skills and be role models for the rest of us that we can learn from. Mm. Because we, we face, a, first of all, we need to be able to live with each other in reasonable harmony. That is obviously an important goal. And we also face an increasing number of very large scale and wide ranging problems in order to, um, I think most importantly of all, environmental degradation and climate change, I would put those yeah, top of yeah. the list. But we face a lot of problems, a lot of very thorny problems that we are only going to be able to solve if we are, if people find a way to work together, to cooperate, to find common ground. Mm -hmm. And therefore, these kinds of skills of being able to talk sensibly across the divide are going to become only more crucial. And they're really difficult. They're really difficult skills to muster. And this is our kind of mini Olympics <laughs> of um, diplomatic, um, persuasive <clears throat> skills. Did you? I don't know if you ever saw the Star Wars prequel films. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> well, it just I, it just reminded me of the what the phrase aggressive negotiations, uh, which might be the opposite <laughs> of, of what Lair is, is trying to achieve. Yes, I would I would recommend uh, uh, looking at Ari on Lair and Two for Tea, and uh, there's plenty of opportunities to get involved, as Iona has has discussed. Um, but I want to I want to ask also because i've been reading richard dawkins's later, later latest book uh, called outgrowing god um 
which I shall be I'll be doing a review for that for Ario actually. Um, but Iona, you, you're a, you're a, um, <coughs> you seem to be quite a big admirer of Dawkins, and I'm, I know you're not an atheist, but I, I think I think you're definitely a secularist. I don't know. I would probably say you're a humanist. You know. Um, so what what um, uh, what uh, attack, what what appeals to you about uh, this little known strident atheist Richard Dawkins, a very obscure writer that <laughs> nobody has uh, ever heard of? Or... <laughs> Um, right. So, um, yes, I, um, I am very, I'm very much, I'm very much a, a secularist. I believe strongly in civic nationalism and in um, freedom, freedom of worship and freedom from worship. Mm. Uh, and those two things obviously go together. So if a, th- a theocracy, in a theocracy, um, the people who are oppressed are people who are members of a minority religion, like myself, mm-hmm. and also people who are atheists. Um, I would arguably atheists are often oppressed more. I mean, there's a large number of countries in the world in which atheism is punishable, um, is legally punishable and even punishable by mm-hmm. death. So I think there's a case to be made for arguing that atheists are uh, one of the most oppressed minority groups when you're looking worldwide, mm-hmm. when you're looking outside the West, but considering things on a global scale. And I I also, I don't believe belief is, is voluntary, um, mm-hmm. including belief in God. And I don't have a, I'm, I'm, I don't have a super strong belief. I would say I'm about a three on Dawkins scale, if you've mm. seen Dawkins scale yeah, of belief yeah. and unbelief. Um, so it's quite likely that no one is up there, but I err on the side of, um, not caution exactly, I guess, optimism. Mm. Um, and I'm also very, I'm quite deeply culturally, uh, attached to my religion. So that also, um, muddies the waters. I'm not, I don't claim to be a kind of rationalist and someone who's, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, run my life in accordance with kind of completely rational considerations. Mm-hmm. So um, I try not to be anti-rational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, spiritual practices are important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am a Zoroastrian in case anybody's wondering what this really strange religion is that I'm alluding to here. But I also think that um, honesty is is extremely important. I don't, I cannot believe that um, my God would be, would require the worship of a bunch of insincere, um, sick of groveling sycophants. <laughs> I find that idea actually quite offensive. Mm. I think that atheism is... Um, is very frequently a uh, a position of uh, integrity and frankness, um, and I can't I can't really um, see any problem with that. And frequently it takes infrequently it's a, also a courageous position. 
depending on where you live and the circumstances that you are dealing with locally. Mm. Sometimes it's very, very courageous. So um, I would say that freedom of belief, uh, even for people who are religious, should include freedom of non-belief by, by definition. Mm. And um, I, I really enjoy... I really enjoy the way in which um, Dawkins just cuts through the crap. <laughs> so I I um, I appreciate his I I appreciate his straightforwardness. I appreciate the fact that I I love following him on Twitter, for example. <laughs> I love Grumpy Dawkins. <laughs> is the best Dawkins. <laughs> Um, it's the the the, the latest uh, uh, evolutionary um, adaptation of Dawkins, the Twitter the Twitter exactly. grump, <laughs> the Twitter grump, because he just um, he when he tweets, for example, he doesn't try to think what's the thing that I could say that we would be the most diplomatic, <laughs> or the thing that people would most enjoy hearing, or the thing that it would be most. Um, beneficial for my brand mm -hmm. to say um you know all this it's not posturing and peacockery and i can't <coughs> stand mm. he's just telling you straight out what he thinks and it's often what many other people think but they don't want to say because it would look bad and they wouldn't get as many likes mm -hmm. or um things like that and i uh there's something very refreshing about that. Mm. And of course, and mind you, also, I have to add, and then I also find what he has to say non-offensive. So you could argue that Trump also does this. Uh, he also says whatever the fuck he wants <laughs> without caring. Um, but a lot of what he says is lies and, and what is the things that aren't lies are either stupid or offensive, mm. genuinely offensive. Um, and not, neither of those things, it also matters what you say, of course, it's important to be honest, but it's also important to, um, I mean, if you just, you enjoy, I don't know, raping children and you're honest about it, that's, <laughs> that's not really a very, that's not really very praiseworthy. Um, there's also what, what you actually think, but the, this tendency to, be open and honest is something I, I very much mm -hmm. value. But what I, my main, um, uh, my main interest in Dawkins by far, and um, what I most enjoy about Dawkins is his work in evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the, which is one of my desert mm -hmm. island books. And I think that that is, uh, it's incredibly um, beautifully written. He is so good at taking complex ideas and explaining them very simply and clearly, but without any dumbing mm. down in a very, in a really engaging and uh, pro style. And I found that book actually quite moving. So I finished reading the book, which is magisterial in its um in its treatment of really all of the most profound questions that are raised by uh, when you consider the nature of life on earth that is what the book is fundamentally mm. about 
Um, he raises all of the most important questions and he leaves left me with a sense of absolute ironically, ironically, he left me with a sense of reverence. Mm -hmm. Um it makes you feel um oh you know what it, it gives you I had a sense of real kind of wonder and appreciation of the natural world after reading that that book. So um yeah, Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, is the main focus of my admiration. But I'm I I enjoyed reading um, uh, I enjoyed reading the God Delusion, and uh, I also enjoy his grumpy dad episode <laughs> on Twitter. I like all aspects of Dawkins. <laughs> I think uh, <coughs> I actually happened. I'm going to try and find this. Uh... <clears throat> Actually, no, I'm not, because that would take too long. Uh, in The God Delusion, I think he mentions um, somebody who uh, said that he is kind of, well, he might as well be religious because he always bangs on about uh, the wonder and, and beauty of, of science and nature. Um, so I think one of the chapters is called A, a Very Religious Non-Believer. Because uh, I think he, he's very he's very ah, open to, uh, yeah. to, to, to this language of... of <laughs> of reverence and and beauty and wonder, um, but he's also obviously very astringent atheist. Um, but yes, and I think I think the point is that 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 these kind of almost luminous and transcendent ideas are not closed to non-believers, people who don't believe in anything supernatural. Uh, these are. These are feelings and things oh, that can no, that are open to everyone. Um, um, I think it's. I mean, here's here's the kind of an atheist way of framing it, which is nevertheless, which might. Um, I mean, sorry. Let me start that whole sentence. <laughs> um, think of it this way. As far as we know, this is the only planet with sentient life. It's the only one that we have discovered so far. I hope it's not the only one. I also have a sort of sort of a belief is too strong a word, but I have a kind of very strong wishful thinking about aliens. Mm. Um, I really hope there is sentient more another form of sentient life out there, and I think there may be. I don't see any reason to rule out that possibility because i think we are familiar with only a really tiny little bit of the universe so far but here we are on this planet and you and i are both alive we exist what are the odds mm. of that um we we have this very short really short period i mean hopefully not too short yeah <laughs> but we have this um probably under a century you know or not significantly more than a century of time um here alive in between all of all of the kind of infinity of time that has happened since the big bang and possibly before if you believe in string theory and multiple mm. universes etc and all of the infinity of time from then until the end of the universe even assuming this is the only the only universe which i actually don't believe um but 
that the kind the insignificance of that amount of time and the odds that the 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 odds that the DNA would would be shuffled in that particular way to create you is just this is just mm-hmm. extraordinary how you cannot be um, filled with even if your life is not, is unhappy how you cannot be filled with mm-hmm. enormous gratitude um, and uh, amazement mm. at we all we all won at, um, the the most staggeringly astronomically unlikely yeah. lottery. I I also think I remember must have been four or five years ago. I went to I went to Edinburgh Zoo, <coughs> um, and. I mean, on a on a tangent, we could discuss the morality of zoos. Uh, but when I was there, there was you know the, you have the ape exhibit and uh, chimpanzees and apes. And God, I was just like I was mesmerised actually when I when I was watching them and and especially their hands. This uh, this human or almost human uh, kind of similarity between us and our closest relatives and. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the most uh, beautiful ideas that's ever been suggested by by any human thinker. That the the fact that we are so closely related to to not just gorillas and apes, but all of life. I think that's a very beautiful idea, and the fact that you know it's actually true as well is is uh, a pretty big bonus on top of that. It's. Uh, I mean, I don't. I, I hesitate to yeah. call it a kind of spiritual experience, but I suppose <clears throat> it was probably the closest thing I, I would probably ever come to what you might describe as a spiritual or religious experience. Just um, you know, observing these these apes um, and knowing that these these apes are they're not just animals. You know, we're animals as well, and they they have emotions and intelligence and. It's, uh, it's just it's very beautiful. I, I think that, yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And I also think about the kinds of um, the scales um, of... Um, I get that feeling also from from our position within this, this vast scale of existence, going all the way upwards to the entire universe and going all the way downwards to quarks. Mm. Whatever is inside quarks, I don't know. Um, And it's there is um, the more you closely examine things, the more beautiful complexity you discover. I remember reading about. I read a book. I think it's Oliver Morton is the author. It's called Eating the Sun. It's about uh, photosynthesis and. Um, obviously, I knew that plants photosynthesized, but I had no idea of what the actual mechanism was. Mm. And since I don't have a science background, I also, of course, have forgotten the actual mechanism. I, I kind of, I have this vague sense that I know what it is, but I don't really, because if I had to explain it to you now, I wouldn't <laughs> be able to. So clearly, I haven't understood it um, correctly. Um, but the 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 um the way that he described why magnesium why magnesium is crucial within chlorophyll how this works at a molecular level it's just 
it's really extraordinary that when you were looking at a plant, this is what is going on inside mm. the leaf. It's just astounding. And another book that also had that effect on me was Philip Ball's book, Water, a Biography. It's the most banal of substances. Mm. I'm sitting here with my glass of water <laughs> right next to me, taking a sip right now. And it is a really, truly, truly mind-bogglingly extraordinary um, substance. Mm. So um, I, I very frequently have that kind of reverential feeling when I'm reading popular science because I don't have a science education, so I can't do you know, primary science, but um, I try to read uh, works by by very good science journalists or by popular scientists explaining some of these concepts just just for enjoyment, mm. for pure enjoyment, because I feel this sense of wonder and amazement. Mm. And of those of those books, The Ancestor's Tale is my mm -hmm. favorite, and that's <clears throat> why I have such a strong admiration of mm. Dawkins. I remember this, uh, there was this, <clears throat> I can't remember who it was by, there was this essay. It's in, I know where it's from, it's from the, there was a 2006 book, kind of a, a festschrift. I don't, that's a, it's a German word, so I don't know if I'm, pr I'm pronouncing it right, but a kind of yes, celebration it, of an academic. Um, and in that book, one of the essays about, it was about Richard Dawkins and one of the essays spoke about the kind of advent of these popular science books, uh, which essentially started with the selfish gene, really. <coughs> and yet... Mm, uh, yeah, he was one of... Mm. But like, at the same time, as uh, it was obviously one of the first of those kind of books. It's also kind of still probably unique in the sense that it was actually... Um, it was about kind of new cutting-edge science and original kind of scientific arguments. Whereas popular science books after that, like even Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time, is more kind of summary of of established science rather than the kind of original contribution to to the field, which Dawkins' selfish gene um, mm -hmm. was both a summation of the work of, of, of previous biologists like Robert Trevers and W.D. Hamilton, but it was also um, offered original um, analyses of 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 what was going on. Um, as I, that's not particular, it's not very relevant to what you were saying. But I just, uh, it's just an interesting little piece of trivia that I wanted to <laughs> to put in. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes, no, I mean, I, I yes, I agree with you on uh, on uh, the ancestors' tale. Is 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 oh, it's, it's a very good book. Um, so if if anyone's listening, you know you should should go out and buy that. Uh, it's quite it's quite it's a big book, but it's a good book. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, the next thing I wanted to kind of discuss uh, briefly was, again, it's related to kind of secularism and humanism. Um, you've written recently about the situation in India with the with you know the sort of Hindu nationalist uh, government. Um, and I just wanted to ask, what what would you what what worries you about about the situation in India right now with these uh, very fundamentalists, uh, narrow-minded people who are in charge, and and these people are also in charge at the time at a time when uh, tensions with Pakistan are are 
are still rising as as high of the as high as they've ever risen. Right. So I'm I'm not sure how to what degree this exacerbates tensions with Pakistan. Um, that's that I don't really feel um, qualified to talk about very mm. much. Um, what I would say is that so the the government in power in India at the moment, the BJP, mm. um, are this is a, a right wing uh, party, and um, let me be clear that a lot of people who voted for the BJP did not vote for them because they are far right or Hindu nationalists. Hmm. As with as with Trump vote, voters, for example, um, people's motives for voting are often complex. And um, Narendra Modi and the party ran on a platform of, partly on a platform of economic development. So many people voted for it because they hoped it would uh, improve the Indian economy. Um, and this had nothing to do with uh, um, its its Hindu nationalist slant. Um, also, the Congress party has been through many, many, um, um, and many of them just accusations of corruption and many of them justified. Mm. There's a lot of corruption and nepotism in the uh, opposition party. So there were a perfect storm of reasons that carried the BJP to power. But within power, I would say that a lot of prominent members of the BJP are very much, I I use the word fascist here, mm. um, because I think that it's, it's one of a number of fascist ideologies that all have related characteristics. So I don't usually talk about white nationalism either. I also call it fascism because it's, fascism is a good umbrella term mm. here. Um, but it's, so it's um, Modi himself has links to the RSS, which is a um, Hindu nationalist organization, um, very, very strongly um, religious fundamentalist Hindu nationalist, um, very anti-Muslim, anti-Christian yeah. um, organization. And Modi rose through their ranks. He's closely affiliated with them himself. Um, the BJP is not is not like their official party, but um, but many members of the BJP, including um, including the most prominent, affiliated with that group. And that is a group who their founder was a huge admirer of Hitler. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not joking when I say this is a fascist organization. I mean that in the most literal sense. Daniel, you should maybe stop rustling so Oh, much. sorry, I didn't realize I was. <laughs> 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 um, it's okay. I just want your podcast to sound yes. good. Well, we are, um, we're, uh, we're, we're... So, um, and, and in particular, I think one of the most disturbing figures is Yogi Adityanath, who is the... Um, who is the province uh, leader in Uttar Pradesh, giant province of Uttar, Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. Um, and he is a monk and a very extreme um, bigot, mm. I would say. There's really no other word for it. And what we 
see is a drive towards making Hinduism a state religion, um, treating non-Hindus as second-class citizens. Um, we've seen, especially in Uttar Pradesh, and very much encouraged and egged on by Dityanath, um, a lot of violence against non-Hindus. Um, we've seen people killed uh, during the Christmas period. There was a rash of violence against Christians. People were killed when they were singing uh, carol carols and things like that. Absolutely absurd. Mm. Um, people have been killed for um, eating beef. And the response of the police has been to send samples from their fridges to a lab to see whether they really did eat beef. I Gosh, mean, this yeah. is just astounding. Um, and also there have been, um, um, I don't want to exaggerate the level of the violence because India is an enormous country. So when you see, um, when, when you see examples of the violence, it sounds as though there's a lot of it. Please bear in mind that there, there are 1.3 billion people in that country. Mm. So if you see 12 examples of violence, you should probably not conclude that the whole place is a powder keg. But nevertheless, I do find it worrying. There's been a worrying rise in what the Indians call lynchings, which is mass violence against a single person, um, often religiously motivated. And it's because of beef rumors of eating beef. In the case of Christians, it's often rumors of uh, evangelizing and making converts, um, which is considered a kind of aggressive act. Um, then also, also uh, there's been a lot of violence against Dalits, the former untouchables, and other lower caste um, Hindus uh, for you know, usurping the privileges of the upper castes. Mm. So this whole kind of casteism has got, has found a new lease of life in this um, militant Hinduism. And there's, al there's also been a lot of violence against people in mixed faith and mixed caste relationships. In particular, Muslim men have been killed <coughs> for um, having relationships with Hindu women and Dalit men have been killed for having relationships with upper caste women. Mm. So all, all of this is shocking, very divisive. And um, some of the policies are also really um, just an extraordinary distortion of priorities when we consider the kinds of challenges that India is facing. It's probably one of the most environmentally degraded countries. Um, and uh, people can barely breathe in Delhi. There are massive water shortages. There's so much, there's so many problems with hygiene, sewage, rubbish, etc. Um, the idea that the priority should be making sure nobody is eating beef anywhere in the country is just absurd, mm. absolutely absurd. And it's very divisive. Um, it's also, there are also some uh, regional implications. So um, mo many people, many BJP supporters are trying to impose Hindi as an official language throughout the country. India has, has 22 official languages. And I think around 50 languages are spoken 
um, and it's something like I may be getting these figures slightly wrong, but in the ballpark of um, thirteen or fourteen languages are spoken by more than a million, mm. um, and only about half of the country speak Hindi. About ten percent speak English, but the English speakers are geographically spread throughout the country, whereas the Hindi speakers are concentrated in the northern Hindi-speaking heartlands. So there's also a huge amount of resentment from people in the south who don't speak Hindi at, at this kind of attempt at Hindi imposition. Mm. And I, I think that this is actually very dangerous. People really hate, really hate uh, language impositions, mm. really hate them. So I... This is a large reason why Bangladesh broke away from Pakistan because the imposition of Urdu on Bangla speakers. And I think that that could really lead to significant conflict. So, um, and it's also meant a revival of a lot of, of the uglier elements of Hinduism, not just casteism, but um, Miso uh, very deep misogynies um, that are whether these things are intrinsic to Hinduism or not is something that is hotly argued so there is a reformist quote unquote strand of Hinduism they don't describe it that way let's say a more liberal strand and to explore that I would recommend Shashi Tharoor's book Why I Am a Hindu mm. but this is definitely Hinduism in its ugliest incarnation mm. I, I think um, <clears throat> it just uh, occurred to me that um, that's all very it's very depressing the the situation right now. It just so if you'll allow me a joke, um, both of my both, yes, go ahead. I have two flatmates, and one is vegan and one is vegetarian. So I can, I can kind of I can understand the oppression of of people who eat beef. Uh, and the uh, that's 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 a microcosm of 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 of. No, I'm joking. This, <laughs> but Shashi Tharoor, he um, I think he spoke at Edinburgh, uh, university a couple of years ago or something, because uh, his uh, his yes. uh, about um, uh, about the sort of British legacy of the empire to India. And he oh, there's yes. there's also there's, I, I haven't read that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, like I, I think he yeah, wrote a book about it. Um, but he um, there's also there's also a thing I've seen on YouTube. I've not actually watched it yet, but there's a debate with him and uh, Christopher Hitchens, I think, about freedom of speech, which uh, looks very interesting. But I've yet to I've yet to to look into it. Um, but my next yes, my next I, kind I of yeah. I disagree with Chashi on a lot of things, but I really like his book, uh, Why I'm a Hindu. Mm -hmm. And also he's written, he wrote a novel, which is a modernization of the Mahabharata. Mm. It's called The Great Indian Novel. Mm -hmm. The novel is called The Great Indian Novel, Shashi's mm. book. And I would highly recommend mm -hmm. that. It's very amusing. <laughs> I just, uh, I was like, I think this leads into something that I also wanted to ask. Um, I was going to ask, are you an optimist about the future or are you a pessimist? Because uh, not just in terms of India, but 
the world generally. Because um, I remember, again, it occurred to me while I was listening to you talk about, about the Indian situation. Uh, I read recently uh, Salman Rushdie's essay from, I think, 90, 1997 about the 50th anniversary of um, Indian independence. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a, lit, a litany of, of, of the, the failures and the crimes and uh, that, that happened, you know, with Indira Gandhi and the corruption of Rajiv Gandhi and, and so on and so forth. But it also ends on a very upbeat note because it says that despite all of these sort of sectarian and political divides in India, um, for 50 years it's uh, still succeeded as a kind of, the as, you know, a democracy and as a very wide and diverse country which is still united and... And now, 20 years on from that, 70 years, more than 70 years after independence, um, it's still, despite, again, the recent developments, it's still, there are still reasons for hope, I would say, um, on that basis. Um, so, yeah, would, would, would you say you're an optimist about the future of India and the world generally? But, or do you think, do you think? Um, I'm a very strong. Sorry, are you? Um, I'm a very strong optimist mm-hmm. where long term is con- where the long term is concerned, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, I'm 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 very very much an optimist where the long term is concerned, and I'm influenced in that by people like Steven Pinker and David Deutsch. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- where the sh- me- short to medium term is concerned, um, I am slightly optimistic I would say I have a lot of fears Mm. um, about what will happen in the short to medium term not just in India but worldwide I think there's a recent resurgence of fascist ideology of strong men of authoritarians of various stripes Um, so I have short to medium term concerns and I think my one really long term concern is species loss Mm. I, I hope that we can find some kind of way to make Jurassic Park seem like a, a, a like a prophetic film. <laughs> I hope we can find some Jurassic Park way to save animals' DNA and and restart species, because otherwise we are very seriously <coughs> fucked. Because species once gone are gone for good. Yeah. So I'm I am a pessimist in that sense. Um. But over the longer term, uh, absolutely, I'm an optimist. I think that um, the the arc is the arc is long, mm. the moral arc, but it bends towards yeah. good. Um, I think that I feel that our direction, the direct humanity's direction as a whole, India's as a country, um, this is true of almost every. Um, in in almost always of almost everything has been it's been a kind of rocky graph you know it's a zigzaggy it's a zigzaggy little graph but it's still pointing basically upwards Mm. um if you take a long enough view then you start to see that the pattern is upwards Mm. the pattern is positive so um yes i um, I'm a very, um, I'm a very convinced and committed um, uh, optimist. Yeah, no, I think um, I think I probably agree with you. But I would also add that 
the trend is, I think, towards progress and uh, and upwards. But we shouldn't also uh, be complacent about that and just think, well, things have been improving for the past fifty years or hundred years, and therefore it's going to continue. You know, you, the point is that those progress, that progress was it was fought for and argued for. Um, so you right. know, it's still it's I still mean, necessary we, to to, to fight for these things yeah. and, and and argue about these things in order to ensure that that pro that upward um, trend continues. Yeah. Absolutely, I think we can't afford to be complacent. Um, however, I think that the fights are going to get easier. Mm. Um, so, um, but yeah, complacency is is definitely not the point. This didn't happen as a kind of law of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, this happened because of how hu- how we humans felt and what we said and what people mm-hmm. did and what they fought for. So, um, but I think that the fights will get easier because certain things do begin to be taken for granted. And you have to be careful about backsliding and erosion. Mm. But nevertheless, um, there are some kind of um, basic battles that you don't have to fight mm. again. Yeah. Um, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, sometimes once once um, um uh for example the kind of extension of the franchise and, and the vote to <coughs> to not just you know, a very small landed elite. I think that would be very hard to reverse. It's, it's quite difficult to envision yes, that, that yeah. for example. But you know Well I was thinking of um I I've been I was thinking of this when I was writing the article on circumcision, I was going to write a, a part that was about sacrifices, religious and, and ritual sacrifices, but, but I didn't in the end. In the end, I took that back out. But if you think about that group of people who were, um, the archaeological remains were recently discovered of a group in, I think it was in modern day Peru or Bolivia, certainly in this part of the world, in the new world, um, in this part, meaning where I, where yeah. I am <laughs> right now, where I live, um, there was a group of people who um, ha- clearly did this enormous sacrifice of children and llamas. Mm. And you can see the, um, the archaeologists can tell that this was in the middle I may be getting these details wrong. If so, I apologize. Anybody listening, please don't take my word for this, but go and <laughs> Google and fact check me. But um, if I recall rightly, um, the archaeologists could tell that this had happened in the middle of a major drought. So it was clearly a, an act of propitiation to the gods to make it rain again. Um, they were starving and desperate. So, And the way sacrifice, of course, work is that you have to give something that is really valuable to you. And if you're really desperate, you need to give the thing that is the most valuable to you. Mm. And what's the most valuable thing? Their children, obviously, and their llamas Mm. um, on whom they depended. And you can see drag marks in the soil from where the llamas were brought to be killed, which is really um, chokes me up to even think about. Um, that you can see the evidence there. You can see where the llamas have dug in their hooves and mm. been dragged. 
You can see like little hoof marks of them just walking <laughs> up until close to where the place is. And then you can see where the llama mm. saw the thing going on and realized what was happening. And from there on, you see deep, deep drag marks oh. in the soil. Um, and, that. you know, so uh, that we, will, we won't go back to that. Mm. Mm-hmm. We won't mm. go back to that. Um, you know, I think circumcision is kind of a relic of that. Mm. Um, began as a sort of relic of that, a replacement. Instead of having to kill people, you can just give the foreskin. Mm. Um, and it's an important part of the body for men. So you can see why mm-hmm. you would choose that, because you need to choose something which it is a, is a wrench to give up. Mm. Um, but... We're never going to go. We're never going to go back to having widespread human sacrifice, for example. And I think there are lots of other things like that. There are lots of other dark things which are largely in our past. Mm. I mean, they might there might be little pockets of this cropping up, but I don't think we need to worry that um, that that the moral arc will somehow double back on itself and reverse, mm. Ex- unless maybe in the event of some extraordinary nuclear holocaust um <laughs> when we we're back to back to india and pakistan <laughs> go back to the stone age yeah um yeah i mean i i tend to think that one of the things that will prevent nuclear holocaust is that there is no way to drop even the shortest range nuclear weapon on india without damage without doing severe damage to pakistan and vice versa Mm. i have heard a few utterly crazy insane like people on the indian far right suggesting that india evacuate its northern states (laughs) in order to drop the bomb on (laughs) pakistan um uh you know it's just how many million indians live within hundred miles of the Pakistan yeah. border it's a lot it's really a lot oh. um, you know there's there uh, so I think that 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 might possibly help to stave off a nuclear an actual nuclear confrontation between India and Pakistan mm. because two neighbors nuking each other makes no sense mm. of course that does also presuppose kind of rational mindset and, and the people who control the the who have their hands over the the nuclear button, and that's true. I mean, that, I think you know, uh, even um, even during the Cold War, <laughs> we kind of look back and think, ah, oh, well, it was all a very rational policy of mutually assured destruction. But there were some very hairy moments where it was almost pure luck, almost that kind of saved uh, saved uh, saved the yeah. Western world from complete nuclear desolation. So I think yeah, I think I we would we be better off if we just got rid just, of nuclear missiles. But you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I I, I completely I completely agree. Although um, the one one of the things that I've changed my mind about most radically over the course of my life is um, that I've become an, a sort of a I guess an enthusiast for nuclear power. Hmm. Um, I think it's the only good viable option that we have right now, and it. Um, it seems to have proven to be much safer than everyone thought. Mm. Um, you know, the worst accident we've had, we've had is Chernobyl. And in Chernobyl, the birds are returning, the animals are returning, mm. the place is rejuvenating. Um, it didn't destroy the entirety of the yeah. um, 
of Russia and leave Russians um, having birth defects for generations. It was obviously a terrible thing. I'm not trying to discount it, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't apocalyptic yeah. in the way that I think I feared before it happened. And um, yeah, I think it's our, our best bet at the moment is is nuclear power. But I would love to get rid completely of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And I also wish there was just, as a friend of mine says, and I agree with him, there was some giant magnet that could just fly <laughs> over the earth and all guns would be sucked into there. <laughs> um, that's, uh, well, that, that's what uh, a good magneto would do. Do you know yeah. X-Men? You know, <laughs> exactly. you know, a, a, a benevolent yes. magneto who doesn't want to kill everyone uh, yeah. could just take everyone's <laughs> guns away. Yep. Although, exactly. I, don't, I don't know how Americans would uh, would react to that, uh, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think yeah, also the thing the... with Chernobyl is is it was also a very isolated incident, and it was a lot of it was due to sheer incompetence. Uh, so to use to use right. Chernobyl, I think, as a lot of anti nuclear power advocates do to to kind of suggest, oh well, we, we can't have nuclear power because look at what happened there. It's to use a very isolated incident, which, as I said, was based on a lot of incompetence. It doesn't disqualify the general principle of using nuclear power in a in a, in a rigorous and um, in, a, in a kind of a rigorously examined way with proper security protocols. Um, which I would still say yeah, is probably the best also, bet. Yeah, you have to look at the trade-offs. Um, what we're doing right now is pretty dangerous. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, relying on fossil fuels is pretty dangerous. Mm. So, I'm I'm gonna opt for nuclear as a as a, the least worst option. Yeah, yeah. I think that we have at the moment. Well, from from nuclear war and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, pretty uh, serious subjects. I well, I mean, this is also a serious subject, but it's a, um, narrower. I also just quickly wanted to. I'm aware that this is we're, we're about an hour and ten minutes into this, um, but I also wanted to ask. Um, I think we talked about Helen Pluckrose earlier, who's the editor in chief of Ario. Um, she was also involved with the grievance studies um, sting. Um, and I wondered what what was your um, opinion of that? Could you just kind of briefly explain what that was all about and and how that ties into your um, essays about the humanities and academic jargon and so on? Right. So um, just to clarify, I wasn't involved in the sting. I'm going to call it that from now on. <laughs> I really like that. The grievance studies sting because I think that's precisely what it was. Um, I wasn't involved in it at all. I didn't know about it before it became public. So I had been, I was taken into confidence, um, but I, um, I had no, I had no involvement in it. It wasn't my idea, or, and it's not my area of expertise at all. Um, but I think that um, I, I feel that. There, there are several. There, there are a number of problems in academia, and I, th I think that grievance studies is symptomatic um, rather than being the main problem in itself. Is my personal view, um, but it is also 
it is also very problematic that um, this scholarship within um, social sciences. So the problem is less. I I've written about um, I've written about um, the the abuse of theory within the humanities and within English literature. And the problem there, I feel, is opportunity costs, that we are rewarding people for writing unreadable gobbledygook, which, um, which you know, oh, the only people who will read those things are other people who are, other academics who are also writing articles who need to cite that article in their bibliography mm. and they will read in order to do due diligence. So absolutely nobody, even within your own field, is reading you for pleasure or enlightenment <laughs> in any sense. Um, and we are um, rewarding that and I think that that is a shame. Um, I think that it also is alienating people from the humanities and there's there are so many other better things that we could do to enthuse people about literature and art um and so i'm i'm and i think it's just i think it's kind of basically narcissistic peacocky am i allowed to swear on this podcast yeah i mean i think you've already sworn um about a couple of times, oh, but yes, I? yes. <laughs> but don't worry, we're we're um, we're, uh, we're um we're allowed. I mean, that's my policy. We're allowed. This <laughs> way, okay. Well, it's you know, it's narcissist. It's it's basically academic wank, <laughs> and um, I um um I'm I'm usually I'm usually a fan of masturbation, but in this <laughs> particular case, I feel like one should do something more fruitful. <laughs> It's <laughs> um, um, academic so, onanism. Uh, <laughs> academic onanism. Yeah, yeah. Do not spill your seed on the ground, <laughs> people. But what Helen is is looking at is something slightly different, which is social sciences, and um, and also pedagogy. And those are fields which are laying claim to be scientific um, and which are producing supposedly scientific analyses and results which are influencing policy. And first of all, they have um, zero standards of, of their peer review is, process is bust, which, uh, which the hoaxers, the stingers were able to show their peer review process is completely um, corrupt and null and void. And also, and they are producing a lot of nonsense, but not only that, but they are, this is very pernicious nonsense. Some of it is really nasty, nasty stuff. Mm. And it's being used to influence policy in the workplace, in schools, more broadly. Um, and it's also preventing, it's, it, because it's, um, substituting this fake and wrong policy for good policy, it's also preventing people from dealing effectively with real societal injustices. Mm -hmm. So it's slightly different from the humanities concern, I would say. I don't want to go into too much detail on this because this is really not my field. Mm -hmm. um, but um, 
I I'm it's also extremely it it makes me extremely dismayed to see how people are responding from within those subjects. So we've recently seen a similar kind of sting within psychology. Um, and again, I don't have too many details on this. I know Jesse Single is writing a book which is coming out soon. And Brian Earp has also worked on, on this. Um, it's They're calling it the replication crisis in psych. Mm. So many very famous <coughs> psychological experiments, including the marshmallow test, the Milgram prison experiment, uh, have failed to replicate. Um, basically, these tests are not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the response from people in psych has been they're concerned about these things not being true. They're now re-examining everything. They're kind of looking carefully. They're asking, how can we do things better? Whereas the response from people in grievance studies has been um, just endless personal attacks Mm. on the whistleblowers. Mm. It's just like, don't criticize us. We are above criticism. Mm. It's been so childish and dispiriting. It's like they're not interested in their own field being of high quality. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that is one of the things that this has, has revealed there's that it, there's a really strong rot and it's not about preventing people's freedom of speech um any more than it is in psych if you want to write that you think marshmallow tests are a good thing that's great but if you're going to tell people that you have done the marshmallow test it works and it's pre- it you can predict results and it should be used to influence policy that is quite another thing mm-hmm. yeah um it's not freedom of speech to be not called out on that mm-hmm. um you need there you need if you're going to aspire to be science even social science you need to hold to certain um standards yeah of knowledge production i should i should also just briefly um say that um again this uh, you can probably find better explanations of the grievance studies sting as we're calling it uh it was uh, Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogosian, um, who who submitted over oh, about a year, was it? Um, uh, yeah, over I think about eight months. About, I think yeah, it was about eight months. But, yeah, about yeah, they <coughs> submitted a completely nonsensical, badly argued, badly researched articles to some uh, eminent social studies journals. Which some of which were accepted and published, or were accepted and were yes, due to be one, published before the, before the sting was revealed, um, including uh, one yes, which. And one was. Sorry, go yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just. One was actually um, awarded a prize. Oh really? And oh. Um, some of the journals, yes, were quite prestigious, like Hypatia and Gender, Place, and Culture. Um, when I worked as an academic ed- editor, I actually. Um, prepared some papers for both of those journals. Um, so I, I can tell you that these are good journals in the field, mm. not trash journals. Mm. But yeah, one of them won a prize. And the one that was awarded a prize, which has since been rescinded, um, was a study of dogs humping each other at <laughs> a dog park. And um, it was argued that because you could, from the way in which dogs hump each other you can draw conclusions about men and women and 
how to uh, the kind of training you should give to men to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, and that the dog park study proves that you should train men like dogs. You should treat men like dogs in the workplace in order to prevent sexual <coughs> harassment. The whole line of argument was completely absurd. Mm. And they didn't give, they, they said that they'd come to these conclusions by watching dogs humping and then carefully examining the dog's genitals. <laughs> and, um, and nobody asked, they asked them for, um, uh, for F for proof that they had examined these dogs' <laughs> genitals, because they claimed to have examined the genitals of ten thousand dogs <laughs> uh, with permission from their owners. <laughs> and Helen, uh, they wrote that they had. They said, "We're so sorry, but we didn't realize you would need the data, so we've thrown it into the recycling <laughs> bin." And that paper was not only accepted, but was given awarded a prize. <laughs> and. It's not just that any old nonsense will get through. It's nonsense will get through if it confirms people's biases. Mm. And this is being used to influence policy. So in my humble opinion, it's not okay. And um, the way that the people have responded to the whistleblowing is just in the most childish and defensive way that mm. just makes it all the clearer why it was necessary. I was just, I was going to suggest a sequel when you said um, they <laughs> examined the, uh, the 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 genitals of dogs with the permission of the owners. I was I was going to say that's uh, you know they shouldn't uh, you know owners <laughs> shouldn't have that right to 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 allow their dogs to be examined. You know the dogs should themselves give permission. Um, so that's uh, that's a, prob a problematic aspect of of the, of the results. I think. Next time anyone studies dog genitalia, uh, we should seek the dog's permission, uh, preferably with a signature uh, paw mark on uh, on a contract. To, to well, I think that we should we should do the opposite. We should ask the dogs for permission to inspect the owner's genitalia. <laughs> that that would be it. that. Well, see, we've got we've got the sequel. We can we can do that the next. Next academic um, hoax. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, if you, if you, if uh, if anyone's interested in, in in looking into this more, you can just <coughs> search up. Um, I think in Ario, the the Helen, James, and Peter published the kind of uh, uh, you know a, a very detailed account of what they had done, and uh, so if you search yes, if you search right. up on Ario grievance studies. Um, you can find all the all the details uh, there. But I'm aware that we're running out of time, and I, I yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask these last couple of questions, or well, actually, this one could be quite detailed, but I'm gonna ask it anyway because it's a very interesting question. Um, Iona, you've you've as 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 I mentioned, you've got a very kind of international background. Um, you know, Indian, Parsi, Scottish. You live in Argentina. Um, what what do you think? What do you make of of being quote unquote rootless, or do you see it more as being multiply rooted, which is a Salman Rushdie's um, quote about about his own his own experience of living in many different places and many different cultures? Um, 
do, do you see it as being like bereft of roots or do you see it as having roots in different places? That's a really good question. I think um, I, I, I love Salman Rushdie's book, Imaginary Homelands. I think that's the essay collection. Uh, is one of my favorite books and one of the most meaningful to me personally. Mm. And one of the reasons why Rushdie is my hero is because of his interest in these kind of hybrid um, identities. Um, to be honest, I feel, to be honest, though, I feel rootless. Mm. Um, and I've always suffered from this feeling that I'm not completely anything. And so whatever I claim to be, I feel kind of fake. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, that I, I sort of, I don't feel like I'm properly Pakistani. I'm not properly Indian. Um, I'm laying firm claim to being properly Parsi because I've got to lay hold on something. Okay. Mm. So I'm laying hold on that because Parsi identity is patrilineal and my father was Parsi, and I've had my Naujat initiation to the Zoroastrian religion, which is also probably one reason why I cling closely to my religion. Also, that gives me an identity. Mm. But nevertheless, I didn't grow up um, in India. Um, well, I grew up in Pakistan, but only for the for my early childhood. Um, and... I grew up, um, my parents died when I was very young, so I grew up without that heritage. Um, and I've lived in a lot of different places. I think I'm a bit scattered. I feel a bit scattered. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to find the advantages in that and the merits in that. Um, but uh, yeah, to be honest, I feel rootless. And it's something I'm very uh, sensitive to um, recently on Twitter, so one of the people who most kind of hates me said, he wrote this thread which really got to me. He said, Iona is a total fake. You know, now she's pretending to be Indian, but you know, her mother wasn't Indian and she didn't grow up in the country. So she's not Indian. And sometimes she pretends to be Argentine. Well, just having a passport and having lived in a place for 10 years doesn't make you a local, mm. you know. Um, and... Um, but you could say that of all the elements of my life, in a sense, of all the elements of my personality, in none of them can I say I've got like the full package of endorsements and qualifications that allow you to be X. Mm. Um, and I am, I'm really interested in exploring this more in, in, my, uh, in my next book. Um, this kind of what are the disadvantages and also opportunities of um, people with hybrid identities? I do think that um, this, it allows me to, I think that being mixed race in particular is, what I always say is it's, it's, not, a, it's not a merit and it's not a fault because obviously you didn't choose it, but it's an opportunity if you want to take it. Um, an opportunity to build bridges. Mm. You know, I think um, I shall. I'll. I'll end this. I think it's one of the most kind of important questions, actually, of of <coughs> of the past. Well, actually, of our present time. You know, with a, an insanely globalized world, 
where people uh, tend to be immigrants or refugees, um, this, these questions of identity um, are one of the most central questions of our time, actually. Um, and in an essay for Quillette, which I wrote about the satanic verses uh, a few months ago, I uh, quoted something from um, Salman Rushdie's uh, Imaginary Homelands, where he wrote about what the satanic verses was about, and he said it's it's about um, <coughs> celebrates the satanic verses uh, celebrates hybridity and purity intermingling. The transformation that comes of new and unexpected combinations of human beings, cultures, ideas, politics, movies, songs. It rejoices in mongrelization and fears the absolutism of the pure. Melange, hodgepodge, a bit of this and a bit of that is how newness enters the world. It is the great possibility that mass migration gives the world. The satanic verses is for change by fusion, change by fusion, change by conjoining. It is a love song to our mongrel selves, which is a very good um, quote about about the the opportunities that the sort of globalized migratory migratory world kind of brings to to people. Um, but it's very interesting as well the contrast to that. Obviously, there's a feeling that you don't belong, or that you don't have a a, a sort of definite route. Um, so no, I find that fascinating, and I, I look I look forward to actually reading your memoir, uh, which I think is going to deal with uh, some of these issues. I think it'll be very. It is um... indeed. Um, the word title is the half cast. Mm-hmm. Well, what, oh, is it, has it changed? I thought it was a was it not fire and vultures? Ah no, fire and vultures is my blog in uh, my India India blog. Um, but I, I, it's only a working title. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean I do look forward to that. Do you know when it's uh, due to be published? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still writing at the moment. It's an ongoing project. Mm-hmm. Well, it will be. It'll be available um, in the uh, n- near future. Let's let's say that. And uh, yes, it looks like it's going to be a very interesting uh, read. So I will, I'll definitely be buying that when it comes out. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought to end on, I would ask <coughs> about, uh, to, to be a bit more upbeat and a bit more pleasant, um, about the power of literature and art and, and uh, in that vein, what is your favourite book? Or if you can't answer that, because I, c- I couldn't answer that because I've got too many favourite books. Who's your favourite author? Um... Um, oh, actually, I, I'm going to give you two favourite books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you three favourite um, Well, I'll give you two favourite books and a favourite author. So um, I would say that my two favourite um, novels um, are... George Eliot's Middlemarch, which is, I it is the most humane portrayal of the most humane and compassionate of human life and motivation of, that I know mm. of. It's uh, it's an ex- 
extraordinary exercise in imaginative empathy. Mm. So I would I would say that that I think that book is extremely important. And the, my other favorite um, prose work is Ursula Le Guin's, which is a tiny little gem mm. novel. It's absolutely. It's the. It, I've not read, read it. it? No. Stop <laughs> what you're doing as soon as this podcast ends. You need to order it on your Kindle and start reading it instantly, or go to the bookshop. Um, so it's it's it is an um, it's really extraordinary because it's a science fiction book uh, set on it's set on a distant planet. It's set in the distant future on a very far away planet um, where, which is just emerging from an ice age, a frozen planet. Um, inhabited by a race of estrus-dependent hermaphrodites. Um, And yet it is just, it's not, so it's kind of exotic, but the story could not have happened in any other setting or to any other characters. It's very short, but it's unbelievably, um, you know, not a single detail is out of place there. It's the most vivid world building. imaginable it's um, very believable and it's it's extremely Mm. sad it's a very very tragic very tragic novel um absolutely gorgeous i do enjoy other ursula Gwynn novels but that's my favorite sorry (laughs) (laughs) i've got a very noisy flat at the moment uh Um, but you know i've I've heard you discuss that book uh, before and it's uh it's not us one of those books that I, I do intend to read, among many others. <laughs> it sounds very interesting. And two more, two more people I'll give an honourable mention to. Um, well, not an honourable mention, but two other things. Um, uh, in poetry, I absolutely love Shakespeare's sonnets, which I know is mm. a popular choice. But I find them, I like the ones that are particularly sick and twisted. <laughs> Where if you had received those from a lover, you, you would be calling yeah. the cops or getting the straitjackets. Um, I think some of them are just extraordinarily dark, and I love the darkness mm. on it. And then I also adore Samuel Johnson. He is my enlightenment pinup. Um, and he was, in a sense, he's kind of a role model for me because he is a... Uh, deeply um, rational enlightenment thinker, extremely compassionate and empathetic, um, but also uh, he's not from an he's not from a um, an atheist skeptical tradition. It's a very uh, deep and reverential humanism, and it's also very very mm. funny. Um, he is probably the he's the most humane satirist I know of. So he is just an extremely gifted satirist, but whereas most satirists have this pessimistic take or bleak or nihilistic even take on human life and are are quite misanthropic, um, this is an optimistic, positive, um, compassionate, kind of empathetic and pro-human form of satire. And it's just... It's so elegant and beautifully written. And, and many people have read 
sort of quotations from him that he that he spoke when he was trolling um, <laughs> Boswell, his biographer. And trolling really is the correct term. <laughs> that's what he was doing. He loved winding Boswell up. Um, but although that's fun, um, his own writings are neglected, and you should. Um, they're all they're all kind of ephemeral writings, or mostly. His novel Rasselas is completely brilliant, mm. but you should go and get a collection. His his best writing was journalism. Also, his best writing was his essays in the Rambler, Idler, and Adventurer. Mm. So um, it's to read him. It's best to get a kind of selected uh, volume. Mm. I did recently. And it's um... also all online. <coughs> I recently got. Um... Boswell's biography um, from a, ch- a charity shop, which is a massive, it's a, ma- it's a massive book. But um, I've never actually read anything by Johnson himself. I think he's he's oh, very he's much so a. Love him. <coughs> he's one of those figures who's like he's he's often kind of reported on, as you said, as like quotations. People know his quotations and stuff, but people. Don't tend to actually have read the original works by him themselves. It's, it's as, yeah, yeah. It's as if somebody came across Salman Rushdie um, in a, in three hundred years, mm. but they only read his Twitter account. <laughs> it's like that <laughs> equivalent. So I mean, it's kind of fun to read Boswell's biography. Boswell's biography is kind of more like Johnson's. <laughs> but you need to go and read the actual work that he wrote. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just gorgeous. So yeah, it just uh, <laughs> it just uh, reminded me of uh, uh, never mind Salman Rushdie. Imagine if all that was left of Richard Dawkins in his past and in, in three hundred years was a uh, <laughs> was his Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would uh, that would make uh, an interesting analysis uh, for for. For people in the future, actually, I think um Daniel Den himself, yes, Daniel Den, even Dawkins' great friends, uh, commented a while ago about uh, uh, that Dawkins was at risk of uh, destroying his own reputation with some of his incendiary uh, Twitter comments, uh, which <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, most mostly uh, Dawkins is just a bit grumpy about Brexit on Twitter, but. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had those controversies yeah. um, in the well, past few years with uh, some of the things that he that he said. Um, which I think, I mean, I do enjoy his Twitter, um, but uh, there's a risk, I think, that Twitter uh, can can give a false impression of somebody's uh, somebody's work. So, yeah. So be, the the the. Yes, that again absolutely. we're back to layer, you know, Twitter and uh all these social media uh websites are fast food chains, but you know, for for the for the nutritious uh delicacies you must consult longer form uh works. Uh whether it's but the books by the authors in question or whether it's going on to later and writing uh a proper correspondence to to somebody you disagree with. Yeah, that that was a bit that was a very Absolutely. um shoehorned <laughs> advocation of later there, but <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, so um yeah. I, yeah, so just to finish off then, is there anything else you want to 
you want to say anything that you desperately need to to get off your chest? I don't think so. Um, will you have show notes for the episode? Uh, what are show notes? <laughs> So we can oh put, yeah, put yes. Well, uh, well, that, yes. That's uh, I shall try, but I don't. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I told I told you uh, we're amateur. We're amateur. Um, we well, don't... if there are no show notes, please. <laughs> um, if anybody's listening is on Twitter, then please mm-hmm. follow me on Twitter at Iona Italia and go and check out Letter. It's at letter dot oh wait yes no I sh- i'll put i'll put i'll put the um and i'll put the things it, in think. the little description of the of the podcast of the of the episode yeah uh okay that thing thing things in the little description right. <laughs> is usually what people call i am i'm, I'm being inducted into the, <laughs> into the the hall of fame of podcasters <laughs> yes well now you know the oh yeah no I'll, I'll put um yeah so for anyone listening um, in case this is the last remnant of civilization after the inevitable nuclear war, um, <laughs> I'll put <laughs> I'll put some links um, with the things we've discussed uh, in the description of the of the of the podcast episode. Um, and well, I think I think we've, we've had a good a good discussion, wide ranging. Um, so yes, so I shall. I don't really know how to sign off. I don't know. Shall I just say goodbye? Um, yes, just yeah. say thank you for yeah. thank yes. you for Th- coming on the podcast, Iona, and have a lovely week. <laughs> thank you for coming on I the podcast, do. Iona, and um. <laughs> have a lovely week, everyone. I don't know how I'm going to edit this, but you know, uh, you know, this 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 is fine. Bye uh, bye. Okay. Uh, yes. It's the first episode, everyone. Okay, goodbye. It's yes, fine. goodbye. Well, you're ahead. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Cut. <laughs> oh dear.